Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John 5. And these brothers have some Bibles as they make their way to the back. If you need one, then just get their attention and they'll get one of those Bibles to you. First John chapter 5. Today we continue a three-week mini-series begun two weeks ago, which I'll introduce in just a bit. We recently completed a study through the book of Philippians, but I've delayed starting another biblical book study because we have a few holidays and special occasions in the next month. Last week we observed Easter. Next week we have a guest speaker. We'll conclude this three-week series on May the 7th. The following week is Mother's Day, and the week after that is a service devoted to ordination of two of our men, Rich Carrico and Larry Castle. So I plan to start our next series on May the 28th, and that through the book of Ecclesiastes. So bear with us over the next several weeks as the schedule is just a little bit disjointed. I went through a phase of my life when I kind of predicted the end of the world. When I was in high school, the Pentecostal church that my father pastored, and then after he died, my uncle led, that church would often teach on end times issues. So much so, and with such great intensity and effect, that I was convinced as a teenager that the Lord was returning soon. So how did that affect my everyday life? Well, one way that it affected me was it gave me a somewhat spiritual reason to blow off the stuff I didn't want to do anyway. Things like homework. In fact, at one point, I was actually called into the high school counselor's office at the Christian school I attended. Mrs. Haight said, Kenny, we're convinced you can do better work. My reply was, well, you know, I don't think it matters much because I'm convinced the Lord is going to return before graduation. <laughs> and she said that, rightly, even if that were true, you should do your best for the Lord that you're soon going to meet. <laughs> but all of that had little effect on my high school academic career because, of course, the Lord's impending return was not the real reason for my irresponsibility I just wasn't very motivated for schoolwork at the time. So for those of you kids out there, don't try this at home. Now, my carefree, happy-go-lucky attitude was in contrast to some of my classmates who took their homework and, in fact, even in high school, every aspect of their lives extremely, extremely seriously. I can recall many times coming into class my junior year when I sat next to a gal who was one of the really serious types. I'd sometimes come in, sit at my desk, look over at her, and she'd have a death grip on a book or a paper as she tried to cram in just a little bit more information. And her hands would be trembling. In fact, she was a nervous wreck all the time. When we'd have to pass papers back and forth in class, I'd sometimes make contact with her hand And it was always ice cold. I remember having conversations with her about why she was always so nervous. And she wanted to know why I was always so calm. Well, what was going on with me was no great mystery. I was just pretty much an irresponsible teen. But she had something much deeper going on. 
You see, in her mind, she could not make a mistake on anything. Her grades were perfect, literally. Her external conduct was perfect, literally. And she lived every day with the pressure of having perfect grades and perfect behavior. Though I know she was never taught this directly, most of us know that most of what we take with us is more caught than taught. And she had caught the idea that her worth, including her worth to God, was based upon her performance. She was to be our class valedictorian. But for reasons I'm still not completely clear on, she ended up not even marching with our class at graduation because what I heard was she had not completed a typing class our senior year because she had broken her arm in our last semester. So now her academic records were no longer perfect and her behavior became far from perfect too. I have not heard from or about her for many years, but the last time that I did... I heard that she made no pretense of a relationship with the Lord. She had a best friend in high school who had a similar approach. Though her grades were not as stellar, she prided herself on dotting every behavioral I and every legalistic T. But she eventually cracked under the pressure, and now she wants nothing to do with the Lord. As we begin this mini-series on grace-centered living, that we started two weeks ago and now we continue. I said then that I've been surprised to find how many people suffer from a false view of themselves, a false view of God and of sin and forgiveness. Over the years, I've met many people who have caught the false notion that their worth to God is based on how good they are and on how well they perform. And that has all sorts of devastating results. As I was researching this, I came across the testimony of a man who was raised in an extreme performance environment. He was homeschooled using the Bill Gothard Advanced Training Institute materials. Now, his problems were not because he was homeschooled. In fact, we did homeschooling for several years, and others in our church have found it to be a good option. But Bill Gothard's system while teaching some good things, is overall a graceless, legalistic approach to Christian living that I would not recommend to you. Now, if you don't know who Bill Gothard is, then be thankful. But listen to this as I read what a man reared in Gothardian legalism says about how he was affected by it. First and foremost, I was prideful and arrogant in my attitude about people around me in and out of church. I followed the rules and they didn't, so obviously I was a better Christian. As such, I didn't associate with them. Secondly, I developed an incredible ability to lie and deceive others about who I was. I knew I wasn't perfect on the inside, but it wouldn't matter as much if people, including my parents, just didn't know. Some of my offenses including, included cheating in school and watching things on TV that my parents didn't approve of. Still today, I have a strong tendency to cover up failures and avoid transparency, even in my own family. The third personality flaw also continues to be a struggle until this day. I developed the form of obsessive-compulsive disorder. The best way I can describe it was a constant overwhelming fear of messing up 
whether it would be forgetting to pray before I ate or accidentally offending someone. I remember nights where I would spend 30 minutes doing something as simple as locking the doors before I went to bed because I was afraid I wasn't doing it right. It's bizarre, he says, I know. At the root of all of this was of all of this was an oppressive fear of failure. As an aside, my parents took me out of piano lessons at this point, thinking that the pressure of competition was the cause. We also burned a few piano pieces I was playing at the time because we were taught that certain music carried demonic powers. Now in my adulthood, this behavior still manifests itself as extreme perfectionism and an inability to accept any kind of failure. My wife can attest to this. I've taken some evening courses in college and schoolwork, for example, has been known to cause me great emotional stress as I simply can't deal with the prospect of failure. He adds, I always thought that my personal value was based on how well I followed the rules. And he says, to this day, I struggle with legalism, with pride and dogmatism and feeling insecure in my relationship with God. And finally, he concludes, the problem with believing that you can keep sin out of your children's lives is the truth that sin already dwells within their hearts. And when a child doesn't experience personally the love of Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the gospel, then the rules mean nothing except captivity and oppression. I know personally of numerous young people that have completely abandoned their walk with Christ. Now, some of you in this room find it extremely hard to ever admit that you've messed up. And as such, you almost never find yourself asking others to forgive you because that would mean that you've sinned, which would mean your performance is not what it should be. And since you can't admit your sin, you lie to cover it. Or when it's even hinted that you may have made a mistake, you begin to blame shift Because it simply cannot be your fault. You look at others with disdain because a performance approach invariably leads to comparisons with others and they don't measure up. You've caught the false idea that if you do the right things, then things will go right. But the reality in your life is quite different. They haven't gone right in all the respects that you expected Because they never do in a fallen world, and God never said that they would. But you thought they would. And you're angry that they haven't. Angry due to your own mistaken and perhaps sinful choices. But you can't deal with that because it would mean admission, and that's impossible, and so you're just angry and joyless. Or you're angry at the circumstances that have been thrust and imposed upon you through no fault of your own though you do wonder deep down if it's due to something you've done. Because it's not supposed to be this way. You're angry at the circumstances because you're angry at God for not keeping up his end of the bargain. And you find yourself without very many friends. You have lots of acquaintances, but not many, if any, friends. Now, some of you cannot relate to what I've said at all. For some, it's because CBC is your only church experience, at least as an adult. And what I've described is completely opposite of what you've observed and learned, thankfully. 
You've not been taught, nor have you caught the idea that your relationship with God is based on your performance. So you can and do admit your sins and your shortcomings, and you find that you're joyful in your walk with the Lord. But others of you can't relate to what I've been saying for a less noble reason. It's because you just don't take sin seriously enough. So the idea that you would be bothered by it is foreign to your experience. So hear this, friends. Our freedom in the grace that is found in Jesus Christ should keep us from both legalism and licentiousness as well. It should motivate us to want to live for the Lord, but to live for the Lord, not for a list of particular rules. Now, recall that I read earlier from the testimony of the man raised in that legalistic environment. He said, the problem with believing that you can keep sin out of your children's lives is the truth that sin already dwells within their hearts. Let me modify that just slightly. The problem with believing that our acceptance with God is based on our actions is that God also desires and deserves our hearts. And the truth is we can do the right things and still have hearts that are far from God. And that's why I wanted in these three weeks that we have between series to do this mini series in order to make sure that everyone who steps foot in Community Bible Church understands the grace of God and the motivating reason that we seek to please him and that we seek to live for him. So we're going to look at that for a second week now today. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we do. Father, we thank you that we can gather in your presence and look at what you have taught us in your word about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us and the profound difference that that ought to make in every aspect of our lives, in the way we think, the way we talk, the way we behave, even in the way we feel. But Lord, there are blockages for many of us, much of it baggage that we brought into our walk with you. Lord, we need your grace. We need your grace in this hour. We need your grace every day in order to free us from those obstacles that would keep us from walking in the freedom that is found only in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to move toward that today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, we have an outline each week for the message inserted in your program. And if you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take a look at it. Where we say a few things about this issue of what God's grace found in Christ should result in for us. The first is this. Grace causes us to see our struggles clearly. Grace causes us to see our struggles clearly. That is, grace, God's grace causes us to see our sin accurately, to see it for what it is, rather than obscuring it with blame shifting and excuses. Two weeks ago, we saw that we must recognize the root, that the root of our struggles is, first of all, an inside job. Now, if you were not here for that, you can listen to it, as you can listen to all of our messages on our website, cbctrenton.com. And the first point in that message was that we must recognize the root. 
And the root is a heart problem, an internal problem. Now, most of you know where that problem for all of us began. The Bible teaches that the first human couple, Adam and Eve, representing all humanity and doing what we would have done, sinned against God and instantly their relationship with him, with each other, and with their surroundings was radically changed. They were made to, together, worship and serve God. But after they sinned, they and their children, us, became sinners by nature so that we do naturally what we were not created to do, and we do not naturally do what we are created for. The entrance of sin into God's world did not result, friends, in a lack then of worship, but simply different objects of worship. And so idols rule our sinful human heart. And these idolatries are generated from within and they're insinuated from the outside as well. John, who wrote these three letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John in your New Testament, he ends his first letter in a way which at first glance is very curious. I've asked you to look at 1 John 5. Notice the very last verse of that chapter and the entire letter. Verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now the reason I say that that's a curious way to end this letter is because the words idol and idolatry are not mentioned in the 105 verses of this entire letter until this last verse. So one might wonder what, if anything, this ending has to do with the content of the book. And yet a closer examination reveals that the letter is entirely about idolatry. One commentator observed, John's last line leaves us with that most basic question which God continually poses to each human heart. Has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title of your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? Is a question bearing on the immediate motivation for one's behavior, thoughts, and feelings. In the Bible's conceptualization, the motivation question is the lordship question. Who or what rules my behavior? The Lord or some substitute? And the undesirable answers to this question, answers which inform our understanding of the idolatry that we're to avoid, are most graphically presented in at least four passages in 1 John. One of those is in chapter 2, a famous passage in 1 John chapter 2. If you'll turn back just a few pages. 1 John 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now, this passage provides two of the three motivations that affect each of us all the time. The flesh and, and the world. The flesh is the internal motivation to idolatry. When it says flesh there, it's not the New Testament word for our physical bodies, but instead refers to our, our sin nature. So the flesh is the internal motivation to turn toward idols and away from God. The world is the external motivation to idolatry. 
The fallen culture around us exposes us to and allures us toward its lies. There's a third motivation to idolatry given in 1 John, and that's the evil one, the devil, who appeals to our sinful hearts and uses the world's enticements. The devil's activity is spoken of in chapter 3 and in chapter 5. Now, all three of these motivations, our sin nature, the world, and the devil, they all conspire to move us to idolatry. The flesh, the sin nature is our self-centeredness. The wants, the hopes, the fears, the expectations, the so-called needs that we've created in our minds that crowd our hearts. The world is all that invites and models and reinforces and conditions us and teaches lies to us. The demonological dimension is the devil's behavior determining lordship, standing as ruler over his kingdom of flesh and the world. And of the three, the flesh, the sin nature, the world, and the devil, the flesh, our sin nature, is most foundational. Of the three, it's the most foundational because the truth is the world and the devil would have nothing to which to appeal if we did not have hearts that were inclined to leave the God we love. This is why Jesus said, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. But what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them because it reveals what's already there. In the opening message of this series two weeks ago, I asked what thing or what person, if you lost it or them, would cause you to lose your purpose for living? And the answer to that is your idol. So our struggles are at root an inside job, a heart problem. It's the idolatry problem. Now, you may understandably be thinking to yourself, this series is titled Grace-Centered Living, And the title of today's message at the top of the outline is Grace-Centered Perspective. But so far, all you've done is tell me how bad I am, that I'm a serial idolater. So where's the grace in that? Well, you see, friends, it's grace that causes us to see the truth and to accept the truth. Our natural inclination is to be in denial about ourselves and about our problems. Because we believe our standing before God is based upon our performance, we can't abide seeing the truth about ourselves. Because our identity is often found in the approval of others, it's paramount for us to look good in their eyes and never truly let anyone into our lives to see us as we really are. To see who we are and accept who we are requires a sense of security that only the good news of the gospel can give Because as I often say, since Jesus has covered my sin, I don't have to. And this is a God-given perspective. It's a way of seeing ourselves that only he can provide for us. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, and if you've submitted your heart to him as your Lord, that happened, friends, because God did this gracious, supernatural work in you to see yourself and to see him accurately. When you came to Christ, he did a work on you so that you saw yourself accurately. And you could accept that. In fact, the great apostle Paul speaks of this when he talks about his reminiscence of how the Thessalonian Christians responded to the good news of the gospel when he gave it to them. 
First Thessalonians 1 says this, the gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. Now, what was the evidence that the good news of Jesus had been applied to them personally? He says in the verses that follow, you welcomed the message and you welcomed it with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And that meant you turned to God from idols. Our sinful tendency is to resist acknowledging who we really are. But God, in his grace, empowers us by his spirit to see ourselves as we really are. And he has made it safe for us to admit our sin because Jesus has paid for that sin. And he not only did that work in us when we initially placed our faith and trust in him. He continues to do that work in his people. The Bible says the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Now, conversely, only the one who has the Spirit receives or accepts or welcomes the things that come from God. We have the ability, because we have God's Spirit, to welcome even the bad news about who we are because we believe the good news about what Christ has done. And we live in that security and we have God's Spirit abiding within us. Causing us to desire what is right, but also to accept, to welcome, to receive the truth, including the truth about our own struggles. And friends, it's imperative that we understand this is all a matter of God's grace. So that in contrast to the blame shifting and the covering and the lying that I mentioned earlier, we can rejoice when our God who loves us shows us our sin in his word And we can say, thank you, Lord, for helping me to see myself clearly. The grace of God causes us to see our struggles clearly. And I say in your outline, it causes us to see our struggles deeply. I'm going to ask you to turn to one other passage. Thank you for your indulgence. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 in your Bibles. Second Timothy three. The Lord in his grace clearly shows us who we are and that we are struggling sinners and his spirit causes us to welcome that. But he doesn't leave that at just the general level. It's not just that we're generally sinners, as in nobody's perfect and everybody sins. Of course, that's all true. But God graciously works in us to show us our sins specifically. And the vehicle that he uses to do that is the word of God. There are several well-known passages in the word of God about scripture. One of them is found in Hebrews chapter 4, which says this, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of Of the heart. How can a book do that? The word of God. Holy scripture. Because it is the word from an omniscient. That is all knowing God. Has x-ray vision to see and expose our hearts. Second Timothy chapter three. Tells us the purpose for which God gave us his word. And that is to produce change in our lives. Verse 16. 
All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scriptures, when accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit, are the most potent change agent in the universe. And how do the scriptures function to change us? Well, those two verses that I just read offer a four-step process by which the Bible produces change in us. Quickly going to give you, let me give you those four. The first one is, in verse 16, teaching. The Word of God teaches us. That is, it teaches us truth, and there's a confrontation then between the truth given in God's Word and who I am and what I'm about. The content of the Word is the catalyst for change, as the Bible acts as a mirror for us. In fact, you know elsewhere in Scripture, the Bible is referred to as a mirror. James chapter 1, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So it's looking into a mirror. It's being confronted with the truth about yourself, about myself, but then going away and forgetting about it. No change. But it's designed for change. And the next verse in James chapter 1 says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. You all see that phrase, the perfect law that gives freedom. See, all of this can sound very negative. God shows me how bad I am in the mirror of his word. That's a horrible thing. No, it's the perfect law that gives freedom. That's God's intention in order to show us, to change us. Whoever looks into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And so the first step is teaching of the Word of God. And the teaching of the Word of God is exhaustive, friends. The Bible does not address every issue of life directly, but it does address every issue of life either directly or indirectly. That is, all issues are covered in Scripture, either in precept or in principle. And that's why the Bible can say that the Scriptures equip us, verse 17 of 2 Timothy 3, for every good work. So the first step in this process of change is the Bible teaches us. The second step is, verse 16, the word of God rebukes, rebuking. The word translated rebuke is translated elsewhere as conviction. So as we look into the, the word of God, into the mirror of the word of God, and we see the holy standard of God's righteousness there, there's always a gap between himself and ourselves, and that creates then conviction for us that I don't, that I don't measure up. So we're going to see if God just left us there, we would be miserable indeed, but thanks be to God, he does not. So grace causes us to see our struggles clearly and deeply, and I say in your outline, repentantly, repentantly. This rebuking, this conviction cuts, it hurts, but it cuts in order to heal. God's purpose is to show us where we are in order to take us where we need to go. Titus chapter 2 tells us the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. 
The whole purpose for showing what's wrong is in order for us to move in the direction of what's right. And all of us, all of us need this. We need to be shown this and then we need to react properly to it. Why do we need it? Because first John says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All of us, even after we've come to Christ, still have indwelling sin and the struggle with remaining sin. And the next verse in 1 John chapter 1 says something famous. It says in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But then if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so, friends, the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is not that one sins and the other does not. Because both do, right? If we say we have no sin, we lie. So the difference is not one sins and the other doesn't. The difference is the believer repents. The believer sees his or her sin and they don't like it. And they want to see it changed. And they see God exposing that sin as a gracious gift to them. He cuts in order to heal. So step one that the word of God uses to change us is teaching. That teaching results in rebuking or conviction. If left there, we're miserable. But step three is correction. Correction. And that's the answer to conviction. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting. Thankfully, the Bible does not leave us in our guilt after conviction. Rather, it provides instruction by which the wrong can be made right. The word that's translated correction in 2 Timothy 3.16 means to cause to stand. To cause something to stand that has previously fallen. We've sinned. It's not right. We're convicted. But God now is going to give us instruction to cause it to stand. His word is going to tell us what attitudes and words and actions to put off. Things like you find in Ephesians chapter 4. And that same passage tells us things that we are to, to put on. So we're to put off and we're to put on certain attitudes and words and, and actions. And it's the Bible that tells us that. And then the fourth step in this change process from the word of God is training. Second Timothy 3.16, the Bible is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and then training. The scriptures provide not only direction to correct sinful behavior, but also that which is needed to continue in the paths of righteousness. The word that's translated training in 2 Timothy 3.16 is the word for discipline. And so the Bible tells us how to form habits of godliness, habits of righteousness. That includes regular exposure to the word of God. Regular exposure to the word of God. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. And the word that's translated dwell means to settle down, to be at home. And the words, the word cannot have its dwelling if it's not taken in regularly. So that's training, that's disciplines of grace. And this discipline requires the study of and meditation on the word of God. Psalm 1 says, the blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord. 
And in his law, he meditates both day and night. When you leave church, do you think about what you heard? Do you think about what you were taught from God's word? That's what meditation means, to mull that over, to reflect, to engage in mental exercise. Now with that, friends, the word of God does has this change process in order of teaching and rebuking and correcting and training us. And if you're taking that in regularly, you take the principles that are given in the word of God and you make application to see what idols are at any time ruling our hearts. David Paulison has a book called Seeing with New Eyes. Seeing God, the world, ourselves with new eyes. And in that book, he has 35 x-ray questions to ask yourself in order to diagnose what's ruling your heart at any given time. I'm going to give you some of those, but we have copies of those x-ray questions in the Resource Center, and you're welcome to stop by and pick those up. They are free. And if we don't have enough, then we'll make some more. But some of those x-ray questions are, what do you love? What do you seek, aim for, and pursue? Where do you bank your hopes for the future? What do you tend to worry about? What makes you tick? What or whom do you trust? Whose performance matters? Whom must you please? On your deathbed, what would sum up your life as being worthwhile? What do you pray for? What do you talk about? Where do you find your identity? And he has 35 of those. But friends, none of those are going to be answered correctly or with conviction by you if you're not regularly in the word of God so that you can compare and contrast your answers to what God says those answers should be. So grace causes us to see our struggles clearly and deeply and repentantly. And then lastly, grace causes us to see our struggles gladly. Gladly. Seeing this not as something that God's doing to me, but something that God is doing for me. And so I gladly say, yes, Lord, show me. Show me myself and show me what needs to change. One of the most helpful and soul-breathing truths in battling the idea that so many of us have that I'm just not good enough and I'll never measure up is that the Holy Spirit convicts. Hear this. The Holy Spirit convicts. We don't convict ourselves. See, for many of you, you're in the habit of convicting yourself. You're constantly beating up on yourself. But it's the Holy Spirit who convicts. We don't convict ourselves. One author says there's a vast difference between self-conviction and Holy Spirit conviction. When God convicts, he gets specific with us about our sin. So, for example, you were wrong to withhold forgiveness when your friend asked for it. And he uses specific scriptures. And this kindness toward us leads to a hopeful conclusion of repentance and dependence. Self-conviction, though, the conviction of the enemy, on the other hand, is wide-ranging. It's condemning. It's defeatist. 
It leads us back to ourselves. Try harder and do better. I can make lists of those action points and I can vow to change myself, but I only end up right back where I started, awash in guilt and condemnation. So what do I do to put that off? On the one hand, I need true Holy Spirit conviction in order to see where I am and where I need to go. I need that. You need that. On the other hand, I've got to differentiate that from self-conviction, self-condemnation. So how do I do that? When we feel condemnation, our immediate response is to prop ourselves up with self-esteem platitudes or turn to other people who will offer us praise. And those are crutches for us. The truth is we are not good enough. And have you read in Scripture what Jesus asks of us? Be joyful always. Count trials as blessings. Love enemies. Put the needs of others always before your own. So how do I put off the self-condemnation then and put on this biblical truth? The hard fact is I can't do it. I'm truly not good enough to do that. So it may seem counterintuitive to us to battle the I'm not good enough idea by agreeing that we're not good enough. But in fact, that's the very first step for us to have joy in the grace of God and his change process for us. It's the first step, but it's not the last step. To find that joy, we need help. And instead of cycling back to vows and self-effort, we have to learn to look at our insufficiencies and then add, hear this, add two words on the end of those insufficiencies. But God. With all the stuff I can't do, there's always what God can and does do. But God. I was spiritually dead in my sin. But God made me spiritually alive. I'm called to keep God's righteous commandments, which I fail to fulfill. But God has given me the Holy Spirit to help me. And now I have all the help I need and I will in humility before God and in gratitude to him for showing me my inadequacy. I will call on that help. I am not good enough. But Christ in me makes me not just good enough, but justified and righteous before God. Because of Christ, I will never face God's condemnation. Thanks be to God. I cannot live the Christian life by self-effort. But Christ gladly lives in me. And so I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There are indeed things I will not be good at. But God has created, notice, but God has created and called me to joyfully serve him in specific ways, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. So you see, friends, all of this is God's gracious work in us. Pointing us, yes, to our inadequacies and in our inadequacies, pointing us to but God, but Christ. Reminding ourselves regularly, gladly, that in our struggles, he is at work. 
So what sweet peace to rest in the work of Christ rather than parsing, evaluating, and self-defending our own abilities. What joy it is to know that God has made provision not just for our salvation, but for our everyday lives. And these are the exact fruits of peace and joy to watch for as we say, but God, rather than I'm not good enough. So here's your take-home truth. Lasting change comes only when we see ourselves as God does. We see ourselves accurately, and he graciously shows that to us in order to take us where we need to go. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of looking at what your word teaches us about your work in our lives and the lives of your children. Thank you, Lord, for your initial work in our lives by your Holy Spirit causing us to accept and receive and because we see our need for the Savior who's central to the gospel message. We thank you for the conviction that you brought each of us who are your children at a point in time when we were converted to you. We turn from idols to serve the true and living God. Lord, we thank you that that work in your children continues on. Your Holy Spirit does that work. Your word is your mirror for us. And all of this is designed to move us, advance us on in the grace that is found in Jesus. Oh, Lord, help us to be people then who live lives that are abundant lives in the, in the overflowing grace that you provide for us. Help us not to never be people who live defeated lives and who engage in self-conviction, but rather we, we relish Holy Spirit conviction so that we can see what truly needs to change so that you can deeply penetrate our hearts, uproot the idols of those hearts and replace them with love for you. Lord, as a result of that, may we be people of peace and joy. And may that be a light to those who need to come to you as we have. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.